didn't have to pitch the college and university and the seminary because uh, John did for me, and I didn't even have to pay him to do that. But uh, yeah, I do. I'm the church relations director up at Masters University, and uh, it's a joy to get to be back here in California after being in Hickory, North Carolina for a couple years, ministering there. Uh, a few of those years overlapped with John, and that's really how our friendship uh, started, even though I did meet him. It was probably uh, the summer of 2006, I think it was, that my brother had started in seminary. He got out of the military and wanted to be a pastor, or thought he wanted to be a pastor, so he started at Masters, and uh, there was a summer class, Gladiator Greek it was called, and it was just to break guys down, you know, just to see can they hang, and, and so my brother was in there, and my impression, you know, and my brother was checking out, does he want to go into ministry? I was wrestling with that as well. I came out to Los Angeles in 2004 uh, to pursue an acting career, and you see where that's gotten me. So um, I was still in the process of uh, one foot in the acting world, one foot kind of inching towards ministry full-time, and my brother invited me one morning that I was uh, not auditioning or whatever, sleeping in, to go to Gladiator Greek, and I was just under the impression, look, I, I was mostly a jock, an athlete in, in college, you know, school came second to that, but I knew how to turn in homework assignments on time to get an A. But I just started hearing about Greek and Hebrew and all this, and I thought, I couldn't do it. You probably see where this is going. So I, I go into this class of, I've never been in a seminary, never heard of seminary before until I got to Grace Church, and I go and attend this early morning gladiator Greek class. And I'm thinking, man, I, I'll just get kind of see what it's like. And I'm in there, and I'm looking around the room, and I just don't see any of my ilk. You know, I, I'm just guys writing in a different language and the guy talking about a different language up front. But then out of the corner of my eye, I saw this hulking figure. <laughs> and I was like, there, there's one of me here, like in the sense of not size-wise, but you just look, I mean, you just look at him and you think, jock, uh, linebacker, you know, whatever it was. And I had never really met John up close and personal. I had seen him around the campus, and he was a sight to be seen. And uh, my brother's like, hey, i got to introduce you to that guy at the end. So, you know, because he was doing his work, or so maybe I thought. But uh, I was in the back actually reading a muscle and fitness magazine. Because about 10 minutes in, I'm lost. And then at the end, yes, I meet John. And he's like, oh, nice magazine. And I'm like, what are you into? And he tells me his story. And <laughs> he had shown me this clip he had found because he saw my interest, and, and this is just the way John is in his sincerity, wanted to connect, being relational, and he's like, oh, check this out, and he shows me this clip, something he had seen about a guy taking steroids, and you know, so just immediately, I'm like, there was like maybe a, a seed planted that a year later would grow to fruition, that I could go to seminary, because I believe that if I met this guy who was interested in lifting weights and, <laughs> and protein and sacking quarterbacks, if that guy could do it, so could I. And so, so started the path for me to seminary and, and full-time ministry. And had no idea we would um, connect again out in Hickory, and that, that was just a sweet season to be there with John. Uh, what I, looking back, appreciate most about him, and I mentioned it already before, but his sincerity, uh, that when any time I would interact with him, there was just such a genuine interest in my life, not an interest in his own. Though he would try to find a connecting point, there was always something he was trying to do to connect to me. It was always about me or somebody else, not himself. And sincerely, uh, a man in whom there's no guile. You know, I really would just be around him and think he really is just not about himself. 
I mean, he just really wants to know how I'm doing, and that displayed itself in a lot of ways. One would be his hospitality. I'm indebted to John in that when my wife and I were newly married and got to Hickory, uh, we would go over to, his, to um, his house, and between he and Vic, I mean, the food never stopped coming. No matter how early or late it was, there was just an element of hospitality that was constant, and I had never really seen that, and to be a new guy in ministry was so thankful for that impact you left on me because Shannon and I attempt to emulate that to others as pastor and wife and when people come over, so much so that we, have, we don't even call it hospitality. We call it crickpitality. So Shannon and I was like, yeah, let's have some people over, man. We got to give them the crickpitality, which is like, Can, you want another cookie? Can I get you a drink? You don't want a drink? Well, no, have one anyway. You don't want one cookie? Here's 12. Uh, his empathy, as you saw displayed this morning, uh, his love for Brian and his family, and, and our condolences as well uh, from my family to yours. Uh, he, he empathizes, he cares, he comes down uh, to no needs. And then finally, um, perhaps most of all, I love John's persistence. Uh, what I see in him is he's persistent in any endeavor he has in life. He'll just keep coming. And I think that did him well. I remember reading a bio about him, uh, his football scouting report. He's tried to destroy all records of it, but I dig them up. Uh, I'm kind of a Google sleuth. You know, I could find this stuff. Uh, WikiLeaks has tried to hire me, but uh, I found this article on John's persistence, the scouting report on him coming out of Purdue. It just said he had a motor that never stops going. And working with him and being around him, both as a professional and as a personal friend, I see that persistence in ministry to, to never give up on someone. Uh, when I ministered with him there, we had the joy that we kind of shared student ministry from middle school to high school to college and singles in their 20s. And uh, there was just a persistence he had to keep going after that straying sheep to never give up on somebody. And that taught me a lesson as well. His persistence in prayer, if you're around John long enough, there's an element that he just always is constantly trusting in God and praying and knowing that God can come through. And then there's just the persistence in general. He just wouldn't give up on certain things. And one in particular that um, I felt like, you know, is the gift it is for me to come here. Uh, there's a gift I want to give back. And so um, are there some elders in the room that I could give these gifts to? Uh, any elders here? Or, John, I could give you to the elders. So one time during this season, uh, football season, it was 2012, Tim Tebow went on a tear. And he, he and I would talk about it. And... Um, he busts into my office, as was the norm. No, no knock, no phone call. Just He would just bust in, and I'm over the word of God. <laughs> yes, John. And he's like, dude, Tebow, did you see that game? I was like, all right, yeah, let's talk about it. So we started talking about Tebow, and I just threw out this phrase, you know, John, here's the key with Tebow. There is no I in Tebow. I just threw it out there, and his eyes got really big. And he's like, we've got to sell that. Sell what? What you just said. We've got to market that. And I was like, no. I mean, I'm a youth pastor in Hickory. I don't have time to market anything. But sure enough, his persistence led to this. We made 100 shirts. And we've sold three in the last six years. So there you go. You could give those to your elders. The other 95 are out in my trunk. So if anybody likes that, because he is on the Mets now, so the colors work. <laughs> Tebow, that is, not John. He's safe here. 
But uh, if you're, so if you're interested in that, but I just share those out of a deep affection for you, John. I'm thankful for you, and I could see the love your congregation has for you because you are a shepherd at heart. Well, uh, I rejoice in the gift to get to come and preach. Uh, part of my job is kind of moving around, visiting other churches, making connections with pastors, but preaching doesn't come as often as it used to when I was pastoring back in Hickory, so this is a specific joy for me today, and I'm thankful you turned out when you might have found out that there was a guest preacher because if nobody shows up, it would be really awkward to preach to myself which is the theme of what we're going to see in Psalm 103 today. So if you're not there already, turn to Psalm 103. But I'd ask you the question, have you ever considered the thought of preaching to yourself? In fact, maybe some of you have because uh, today in evangelicalism, you, there's a, I guess it's become a, an official cliche that to say, hey, preach the gospel to yourself daily. But David had us beat to that back in Psalm 103. Perhaps one of the most gospel-saturated psalms in the Psalter is Psalm 103, and you'll hear that come through as I read this psalm to you. But this psalm starts as David preaching to himself. He, he, he focuses his soul's attention towards God, and not just in general, but specifically what God has done for him. And this morning, as we're going to study Psalm 103, you'll see David preach to himself. So I've, I've entitled it David's Divine Soliloquy. You may know of a soliloquy from literature class. It's when a character is having a speech on stage with himself, no audience around, talking to himself, working through something, wrestling with something. Maybe it's guilt and they're trying to get over it. Maybe it's a decision they have to make and you as the audience get to listen in as the person on stage talks to himself or herself. You might remember this from the play Hamlet. He's holding the skull and he's saying to be or not to be, that is the question. And so this is something he's really just talking with himself about, wrestling what he should do, knowing the kingdom is crashing in around him. Well, we know from the life of David, oftentimes his kingdom was crashing in around him. He was familiar with real enemies trying to take his life. He was familiar with the real pain of losing loved ones. He was familiar with his own sin in his life that caused him to wrestle with, where was he with God? Would God take his Holy Spirit from him? Psalm 51. And so Psalm 103 gives us a glimpse into how does David take himself in a hard time, in a distressing time, in a time where he's wondering and doubting, is God with me? Am, am I right with him? How can I know? And I think in one of the most gospel-focused psalms in the Psalter, you'll see how he gets there. So follow along as I read Psalm 103, a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. 
He is mindful that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. May God bless the reading, hearing, and preaching of his word this morning. David was familiar with difficulty. And this psalm shows us the way he takes his own soul in a progression from, am I remembering anything God has done for me lately? To calling all of the universe to praise God. There's a concentric circle pattern to this psalm, as you see in the beginning, a call to bless the Lord, O my soul, from inner man, one person, individual, to when you look into verse 21 and 22, he is now hanging on the fringes of the universe, calling the angels and the hosts and all works of God and all places of dominion to bless God, moving to the outer edges of the universe, from the internal in David's soul to the infinite, inner man to outer space talking to his soul about how God has worked in his life, but then even moves in verses 6 to 18 about how God has worked for all his children, the nation of Israel, to then calling all of creation to give God the praise he deserves. And so this morning, let's jump into this psalm, and and I broke it down in in just a way to look at it and for us to personalize it, because we want to learn from David this morning. Like David, we want to look at our lives, and at any moment, perhaps in this moment, the month of November, Thanksgiving is coming. I I think sometimes when Thanksgiving comes, I'm I'm more inclined to think about what I'm thankful for, because oftentimes, maybe at church the prior Sunday, there's a, a sermon on being thankful, or you get together with your friends and family, and maybe before the dinner, you're supposed to say, hey, what is something you're thankful for? Well, it, it was good for me to start this month thinking this way. So there is praise forming on my lips in advance for that. So let's learn from David. In verses 1 to 5, David will reflect on what God did for me. And then he'll move in 6 to 18 to see what God did for us collectively, his children. And lastly, in 19 to 22, what God deserves from everyone. So let's start in verse 1. David begins with the command, Bless the Lord which some verses or some translations will say, praise the Lord, and really they're synonymous. To to bless God or to praise God is to say something very similar. It's to give God the glory he deserves that he only deserves. And David, wherever he is at in life, and we don't know where this specific psalm corresponds to David's life, but as we're going to look through the characteristics he highlights of who God is and what God has done, we can probably guess that this would have been after all these things have happened in verses 1 to 5. He's looking back and saying, God has done all these things for me. Because if you look in verses 3 through 5, the who is not forming a question like, hey, who has done any of this? Is anybody out there that can pardon sin or heal disease or redeem? No, he's saying, who pardons all your iniquities? It's God. 
And in fact, in the margin, you could put next to all those, God pardons all your iniquities. God heals all your diseases. God redeems your life from the pit. God crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. God satisfies your years with good things. Those are all indicatives. Those are all true of who God is and therefore acts on that and what God does. But David in verse 1 is not just speaking this in general. He's speaking to his own soul. He's not preaching to the people of Israel. He's not up there as the king saying, hey, everybody, let's gather around and reflect on what God. No, he's saying to his own soul, soul, all that is within me, basically saying the same thing. He asked structure in verse one, a command to bless, object of the command, oh, my soul, object of the command repeated, all that's in me, bless his holy name. Says it again. Verse two switches it up, not just saying all that's in me, bless God. Now he gets specific. Bless the Lord, repetition, artistry, intentionality in the psalmist's writing. Switches all that's within me to and forget none of his benefits. And this is where you see the intentionality of the psalmist. He wants to repeat himself, calling his soul to bless. But he also wants to switch things up just a bit. And to say it's not just enough to say bless the Lord on my soul. It's more to remind himself not to forget any of the benefits of God here. And I think there's a small lesson for that for us to learn. David gives us an example. It's not just saying, bless the Lord in general. You know, we, we, we can get into that cliche mode. You know, I'm just so blessed or um, God is good all the time. All the time God is good. But to get specific, and we're going to see specificity in his worship. And, and to, to just put this out there, it's not always easy to get here. I, I think we learn from David here that we have to be intentional in our praise at times when it's not just coming to us spontaneously. Some days you wake up and the first thing on your tongue maybe not something that God has done for you lately. I mean, he has, but yeah, I know in my life and even preparing for this, I sat down with a notebook and actually went through to, to think about and to not forget any of the benefits of God. Why? Because my worship dries up when I don't remember God's faithfulness to me. When I don't look back on my life, whether it's one week or a month or a year or 10 years, to say, God, you have been good to me in specific ways. One writer says, Psalm 103 is an exercise in sheer concentration on God above circumstances, good or bad, and shows us that praise does not always come naturally to God's creatures. It can take work. So let's see it, the progression of David in what ways he specifically remembers the benefits of God. In verse 3, he couples two together, the pardoning of iniquity and the healing of disease. So let's start first with the pardoning of iniquity. Of greatest importance in the mind of David, that which is of greatest benefit that comes to his mind first is the forgiveness of his sins, is the pardoning of his iniquity, is God not holding his transgressions against him. John Calvin said about this verse, it's not without cause that David begins with God's pardoning mercy for reconciliation with God is the fountain from which all other blessings flow. The fundamental issue of our human existence is how our deeply ingrained sin can be forgiven. The chasm that sits between a holy and righteous God and a hell-bound person, how can that chasm be bridged? As is asked in Job 9.2, how can a mortal man be right with God? That's the fundamental problem to be solved with everyone. And David doesn't rush past that. And forgetting all of God's benefits, and I know in my life, it's not always on the tip of my tongue to first thank God for my salvation, but it should be. 
Because without salvation, what benefits, what benefits matter, ultimately? And I think that's why Jesus poses the question, if, what, what if a man gains the whole world but loses his soul? So the heartbeat of David, in beginning to tell his own soul, remember what God has done for you, soul. Don't forget the foremost benefit, pardoning of your iniquity. You can read Psalm 51, its entire display of, God, of David knowing the forgiveness that only God could bring. The opening line of Psalm 32.1, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Atonement, pardon, propitiation, redemption. Whatever word you want to call it, reconciliation with God. David, in that small sentence, God pardons all my iniquities, starts his heart on a track to worship that teaches me something. And I would just say this this morning, to not take anything for granted. If you're not a Christian here today, we're going to move on and see the many ways, the myriad of ways God blesses his people. But if you don't know the pardoning benefit, the forgiveness that God could bring you in Christ alone, then none of these other benefits mean anything. If you don't know Jesus Christ today as Lord and Savior, if you have not seen yourself as that hell-bound sinner that needs that bridge to that chasm to be bridged to a holy God, and it only comes by the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, righteousness that's not within you. We sang about it this morning. What a wonderful selection of songs that taught us in song, in repetition, in, in the ways in which a psalm speaks to our minds, songs speak to our souls, we sing and express the goodness of God in the gospel. If you don't know Christ today, none of the other benefits, all 10,000 things God could do for you today if you're an unbeliever, giving you another breath, providing for you a place to eat, giving you an income from a job. None of those would matter. You could list all the many things you might have without forgiveness. But it's nothing without pardoned iniquity. And David was aware of that. David had so many things to praise God for as king of Israel. But he wasn't quick to move past the first blessing, which was forgiven sin. Then he moves on in the next part of verse 3 to who heals all your diseases. Now, commentators make a case that this could be both a physical blessing given by God, that we know God is the one that heals us. I remember back in Hickory, uh, we had a doctor there in that church that one time I visited him as he was working in the hospital, and we were just talking over his lunch break, and I was talking about asking him, hey, what do you love about your job? And he said, Adam, it's the gospel witness, the opportunity I get. And I said, how do you get to that? Are you allowed to speak of it? Well, he says, usually after I perform a surgery, a person will come back to me months later and thank me. And say, you know, just thankful for you, doctor. For, you know, I'm healed. And he said, you could thank me for the surgery, but you need to thank God for the healing. That was up to him. It was my job to do the surgery. It was God's job to do the healing. And he believed that. He had a conviction of that. I mean, I, I reflect on my own life. Anytime I've been sick and gotten better, I can't take that for granted. I mean, whatever it might have been, I, I remember a time uh, I have a, a tree nut allergy that if I you know, consume large amounts of them or even trace amounts, I don't know. I try not to test it. I also am uh, too foolish to carry an EpiPen. But one time in Hickory, I, I ate something for lunch, went to pastor's staff meeting. It had pine nuts in it. And my, my neck and face were getting red. And I was becoming short of breath. And, and John looks over at me. And he's like, something ain't right, brother. And so I was like, I, I don't know. I, here's what I ate for lunch. And so, you know, and this is John's persistence and empathy and all of this into one. I'm like, I'm just going to go back to my office and lay down. Well, of course, he like digs out of the trash, the wrapper and the thing my lunch came in. And he's like, pie nuts. And I'm like, 
okay, pine nuts it is. I kind of can sense that. I'm just going to relax for a while. And he's like, let me get you some Benadryl. And I was like, sure, why not? And then he's like, I'm going to call that place. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he's like, they need to put on the label that that had pine nuts. And I was like, well, it was on there. He's like, it wasn't clear enough. And so he's like calling Center Street Eats. I need to talk to the person that sold Adam the whatever chicken sandwich. And they're like, who are you? Why are you calling? I think by the end of it, you got me a free sandwich from there. <laughs> Along with humoring me while my throat was closing. But, you know, I see any of those small things as, as not small things when I know that it's God who physically heals disease. And if not in this life, ultimately in eternity when we get new bodies. But there also is an element that when you think about this, the progression of David's thought, if he starts with pardoned iniquity, but then in parallelism, which we see in the psalm, says, who heals all your diseases, what is a greater disease than the disease of sin? I mean, think about the way sin corrupts us through and through. It's not just a physical corruption. Sure, sin in your life could lead you to an addiction that leads you to physically destroy your own body. But sin corrupts your mind to think of yourself in a prideful way or an untouchable way that could lead you to make a foolish decision that takes your life. Sin corrupts the soul, the will, anything, any desire you might have, a lust that could be born that could cause you to ruin your marriage in an adulterous affair. Sin is the ultimate corruption in our bodies. So for David to know that he heals our, your diseases, I also think about that in my life, that if not for God's pardoning grace and forgiving of my sin and giving his Holy Spirit to me, my mind and my heart and my will would seek out its own destruction eventually. I think about where I would be apart from Christ today. And any number of sins I would be able to commit. I'm absolutely sure of it. Because even now in Christ, I can see the small weeds of those sins trying to sprout up in my heart. That given enough time and without the Holy Spirit changing me and keeping me from them, I could commit any sin. So ultimately, to be healed of disease would not just be physical, but would also be that He heals us spiritually. That we truly are a healed people from the inside, through and through, when we're in Christ. Which then moves into this next benefit that he sees in verse 4. He redeems your life from the pit. Now again, on a physical level, David might have been thinking about times he was actually maybe hiding in a cave or, or something along those lines. We don't have all of David's life displayed for us in the narrative of the Old Testament. Who knows? Maybe he was down in a pit at some time and he was delivered. He was on the run from Absalom. He was on the run from Saul. He knew what it was like to have his life in danger. So for him to say, redeems your life from the pit, could have been physical, but I think there's also a connection spiritually there to say, look, apart from Christ, all of our lives would be in the pit. All of it would be disaster. When I read that, it particularly pertains to my, where I grew up in Pittsburgh. He literally redeemed my life from Pittsburgh. I mean, it doesn't have the, the most stellar reputation in a lot of ways. Uh, o. Henry, the writer, said this of Pittsburgh, it's the low-downedest hole on the surface of the earth with people of the most ignorant, ill-bred, contemptible, boorish, degraded, insulting, vile, indecent, drunken, mean, and depraved. And I say, I knew people like that. And by God's grace, I would have been one of them. I mean, I, I visit my parents. I go back to where I grew up. It, it would be the, the, the picture of a busted-down mill town who 20, 30 years ago had 10,000 people, and it's down to 2,000 vacated homes, but more bars than there are any other business and establishment. And I was just there this summer, and this hit me. I was just driving around the streets, seeing where I used to grow up and play. And homes boarded up, 
boarded up. And I, I stop at a mini mart to grab a drink. And this guy I knew growing up comes in. And, and he's just, he's, he's filthy. He's probably working some job in one of the few mills that's still operating there. And he pays for his meal with all change he's pulling out of his pocket. And just on a physical level, that could still be me. God redeemed my life from any number of alternate places that I could be right now. And to have a wife and kids and be in ministry, all of it is a gift of his grace. And so when I read he redeems our life from the pit, yeah, I may have never been thrown in a pit like Joseph. may have never had my life, you know, persecuted in that place. But apart from the grace of God in my life, I would have very little I could look back and say, man, I came from some good stock. Now, I just have to look back to my, where I grew up. There's not much great happening back there now. God has been specifically gracious to me, and I'm listing these this week thinking, Adam, he has redeemed your life from the pit. And on the spiritual level, you see the progression. Pardoned iniquity leads to spiritual healing, leads to a life being redeemed ultimately on this level and then forever. And then what does he do to top it off? He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. What seals the deal on all the ways in which God works for us is we get this crowning of loving kindness and compassion, his faithful love to his children. It's not just that he removes all these negatives. We covered three negatives. Pardoned iniquity, healed disease, redeemed from the pit, all that pertaining to our sin problem. But what do we get on top of that? We get the positive of crowning with loving kindness and compassion. And that's the faithful love of a father we're going to see later in 6 to 18. Then he moves finally into verse 5, and he kind of sums it all up with, he satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. I, I think this verse 5 kind of, David, David just kind of summarizes everything to say, look, these, these good things, what are they? Well, they're all the common graces God gives, but they mean all the more because of what specifically God has done for me and my sin problem. And that he loves me like a father loves his child with faithful loving kindness and compassion. That's the chesed loving kindness of God in the Old Testament. His covenant loyalty. That he puts his name, he puts his character on the line. That we knew no matter what we could do to him, he won't be faithless to us. It's his covenant loyal love to his children. And David is calling his soul to remember this. And so he summarizes in verse 5 and says, He satisfies all your years with good things, soul. And what does this do for you? Well, this is the first progression David has now made out of whatever despondency he was in by saying, your youth is renewed like the eagle. And in the time of David, the eagle held an amount of mystery to the people of Israel uh, because of their strength and and their majesty and eight-foot wingspan flying through the air at 40 miles an hour. And when they would molt, they would look new. So you would see this eagle living in the time of David, maybe coming out from a certain crag in the mountains. And you would think, man, that thing has been there like my whole life. How is that thing still so fast and strong and gliding over the air? That's why Isaiah 40, 31 makes sense. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will not walk and not become weary. In David's mind, the, the best picture of how the benefits of God transform the soul into worship lead to a picture in his mind of it's just like that eagle taking off now in flight just flying high above all the problems of the world, saying, yes, I'm renewed because I know God is for me and not against me. And it's fitting for all of us to learn from David. Intentionality, specificity, I think as I summarize what God has done for me, what I learned in those first five verses, 
is in a time of life where maybe my worship is stunted, maybe there is a cloud hanging over it, it's good to get back to the specific ways in which God has been good to me. And, and not then maybe take from the ways in which I could see that and connect it to who God is. He pardons my iniquities because he's a savior. He heals diseases because he's the great healer. He redeems my life from the pit because he's a great redeemer. He can crown me with loving kindness because he's a loving father and a king. He can satisfy me with good things because he loves to give good gifts to his children. It's connecting with it, which way, whatever way you get at it. An idea pops in your head of God's character connected to his action in your life. Or maybe you look back and see some ways God has worked in your life, then run that back up to, but what does that teach me about who God is inherently in his being? He's all these things, savior, healer, redeemer, king, giver, and strength. Well, David doesn't stop with his soul in verse 5. There's a verse, verse 6, that kind of builds the bridge to now speaking of what God has done for us, all of his children. And in verse 6, you see that. Verse 6 could have been a capstone to 1 to 5. Why? Because the Lord performs righteous deeds. Is not pardon sin a righteous deed? A redeemed life from the pit? But yet it really springboards this psalm forward into the rest of the verses, into verse 18, what God has done for Israel. It says he's performed righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. And now he's going to get specific, thinking corporately, what's God not just done for me, but what's true of him for all of his actions to his people? Well, what comes to David's mind, verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. Now you might be thinking, well, Adam, how specific is that? That just sounds like maybe a summation of Exodus and Deuteronomy. Well, look at the next lines. Where do those come from? The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Well, now David is quoting Exodus 34. Now, th th this is a, to say, an understatement, perhaps the most troubling time in Israel's existence after the Exodus. In chapter 20 of Exodus, they've been given the law. And right out of the gates, have no other gods before me, and, and make no false image of me. And then Moses leaves to go back up to Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights and to come back down with the stone tablets. And what does he come back down to see the people doing? Well, back to chapter 32, they're making, or I'll just read it in verse 1. Come make a God who will go before us as for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. So the people make a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So we're, we're just barely out of the gates of the people saying, we will do this. We will keep this law. We'll be faithful to you, God. And then as soon as Moses leaves for a month, this is what they do. Now, they are the children of God. They are his covenant people. So at this point, they're probably thinking, God is done with us. And you can see that in the language of chapter 33. God is saying, Moses, I'll keep you, but the rest of them I'm done with. He says, no, go with us, God. Take us all to the promised land. So Exodus 33, 14, God says, my presence shall go with you and I'll give you rest. And Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. In verse 16, listen to the language here. For how then can it be shown that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people. Moses asking on behalf of Israel. Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? What's really behind Moses' statement there is this. God, we're not sure you're still for us. 
unless you go with us. Because we have so transgressed you. These people have just made a false idol and that was the first thing we weren't supposed to do. How will we know you are still for us and not against us? Exodus 34, 6, God passes by in front and declares his name. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity. Now back to Psalm 103. See the connection? When David is trying to call to mind the greatest way in which God has been faithful, not just to him, but to his people collectively, in all the history of God's covenant people, he quotes Exodus 34, 6-8. Because in my mind, my guess is that as David is trying to think, what would be the, the lowest point Israel has hit in turning their back on God? where he would have a right to not be faithful to him if not for his covenant faithful promise that he loves them. It would be when they make, right, 40 days later, they make a false god and start worshiping it. And, and this illustrates to me and to us this morning the glory of the gospel, that as you are in Christ, and he has loved you with a love that is unsurpassed because he gave his most valuable possession for you, believer, that you would go back to the faithfulness of God as David went back to the faithfulness of God to say, this is who God is like even when we turn our backs on him. Verse 8, he's compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He won't always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Notice in that there is the reality of God's wrath. He won't keep his anger forever. I mean, there could be a season, as John mentioned earlier, there could be a chastising season. There can be a disciplining season that when we are unfaithful to God as his children, he needs to teach us. But that doesn't negate his love because what comes right after that? He will not always strive with us nor really keep his anger forever. How do we know he won't keep his anger forever? Verse 10, he hasn't dealt with us according to our sins. I mean, if he dealt with us according to our sins, we would die the first time we sin. The day you sin, you shall surely die. So he doesn't deal directly with us, his people, according to our sins and eternally reward us according to our iniquities. He's not keeping tabs. How do we know he's not keeping tabs? Verse 11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So the promise David is rooting his hope in God in, not just for himself, to teach his own soul to praise God, but also for his people is saying, look, even though there is an element of God in his justice, that he's holy and just towards his children, that he means business when he commands us to obey and warns us of punishment, he balances that out with his grace and mercy that we're never going to get what we really deserve in Christ. We get grace. We get that which we don't deserve. We get forgiveness of sins constantly. Every time we sin as a Christian, we come back to him and say, he's still gracious. He's still loving kind. Why? Because his own name is on the line. What's that like? Verse 13. It's like a father that has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. David points out two truths about God's attitude here. He's like a father in that he loves us. He has compassion. And he's like a father that he understands us. And he does this in the realm of us coming to him for forgiveness. When, when we come back to God and say, God, like Israel, we're coming back with our heads low 
We've just built another false idol. We just got sucked into that lust, that desire, that greed, that pride. We lost our, our temper. We got angry. Can you forgive me again? And like our children, when we have to discipline them, yes, we're just in that we give them what their sin and disobedience deserves, but our love overwhelms that. I mean, I see that as I try to be like God my Father when I'm disciplining my kids. At the height of my discipline is when my love far exceeds that. I mean, there's no greater display, I think, in my life of my love for my kids than when I discipline them. Why? Because one, I'm trying to keep them from a foolish path of sin. But two, in the aftermath, in the restoration of it, my love is at its deepest because I see the pain. I, I see them understanding the consequence again. I'm saying this because I got a four, a two, and a 10-month-old right now. So there's a lot of spanks going on in our house. There's a lot of this uh, compassion and understanding. But when I think of how God is like this with me, how many times, Adam, has he been compassionate to you? On you who fear him. He's always speaking in context of this faithfulness to his children. And why can he be like this with us? Verse 14, because he knows us. He loves us and he knows us. He knows our frame. He's mindful that we're dust. I mean, he gets our inherent frailty, that we're going to fail. Our lives are transitory. He's transcendent. How transcendent is God? Well, he's certainly not like verse 15 and 16. As for man, his days are like grass and a flower of the field. He flourishes, but when the wind is passed over it, it's no more. Its place acknowledges it no longer. You know, it calls us to stop and look back at the whole history of God's people and say, wow, there were, I mean, like David, there were some that did great things for God and had low moments, and yet, I mean, you just look out on a field of grass. I mean, I have a wonderful, like, 20 by 20 plot of grass up in Newhall. I mean, it's just a vast ocean of blades of grass. And then after that, it's just desert up there. But I was sitting there last night reading this, looking at that. And even in just that small plot of grass that I have, maybe twice the size of this stage, I mean, tens, hundreds of thousands of blades of grass there. And that's just... I mean, that's nothing when you think of all the grass that's out there and how grass just comes and goes and comes and goes and comes and goes and its place acknowledges it no longer. If I stop watering that grass up in Santa Clarita, it's gone in a week. And that's me. And that's all of God's children in the sense of our transitory lives. And even I think when we get weighed down with, could God forgive me again? Is he keeping tabs? Will, I, will he turn his back on me? I'm reminded that he understands my frame. He knows how frail I am. Yes, I'm passing on. But what remains? What is my hope? Verse 17. The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children so that, yes, I hold on to the promise that even after my place acknowledges me no longer, God's faithfulness extends to me in eternity. His loving kindness is from everlasting to everlasting on his children. And I get the hope that in the way I can trust and live and love God and display that to my children, there's the hope of his covenant faithfulness to them. That as I live in light of the fear of God, I pass that on to my children's children, verse 17. Those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. That I would instill in generations behind me, not just my physical children, but those I disciple, that here is a faithful God. That when you trust in Christ and desire to follow him, he is faithful to you forever. And so David has moved his soul from inward praise 
Now extending in this last section to God deserves praise from all his creation. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. David is calling all of creation to say, that which we can't even see should be praising God, blessing God. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him doing his will. Bless you all works of his in all places of his dominion. The fact that this psalm ends with a call to praise is both universal and eternal is significant. This call to praise is sometimes misunderstood or underappreciated because it is not so much bringing the psalm to an end, but rather brings the psalm to a crescendo. With the idea being that the psalm never really ends. It extends out farther and farther and farther into the infinite expanse of God's creation with all of it echoing back the blessing that God only deserves. And yet the beauty of this, David could send a call to bless the Lord, all works of his and all places of his dominion, but brings it back personally to the smallest point in the universe, the inner man, our soul. He, he has covered all the ground there is to cover, and he teaches us something important here. In this psalm, that we are made to praise God and to not just enjoy God, but to express that enjoyment. One of my favorite quotes of C.S. Lewis is this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. Praise is our enjoyment's appointed consummation. What I love about the Psalms and what they do for me is it's not just that I can read along and say yes to this. But when I read it aloud or I pray through it, I'm bringing that praise to culmination. The fact that we would come and gather to sing of God's goodness, even as I would wrap this up today, is the appointed consummation of my enjoyment of God. That it wouldn't be enough for me just to say, oh, isn't God good, soul? But he calls all of the universe to praise with him. And I think we learn something about ourselves in this. If you just look at your human nature and say, is it enough when you're really excited for something to just keep it to yourself and be enjoying it? Or do you want to Instagram it? Do you want to just shout it out on Twitter? Do you want to just call somebody up and say, hey, this really good thing just happened to me. Can I tell you about it? Oh, you know, with John and I, it was, it was a connection over sports. It wasn't enough and it still isn't today that if there's a great play, I know if he's watching a game, and he usually is, on a Sunday, you know, when the day is done, I'm getting a text from him. Because it's not just enough that he enjoys that great catch. He wants someone to enjoy it with. We're designed this way. We find a new restaurant that we like, we want to take somebody with us to it. We, we, we go to see a good movie, we got to tell other people about it. God has designed us in a very unique way and that what we enjoy isn't just in and of itself a good thing, but it's when we call others to enjoy it with us. And I see this in the end of Psalm 103. It wasn't enough for David just to recount it to his own soul. He actually calls hosts and angels and all works of God to bless God along with his soul. An old hymn familiar to some of you is where I'd like to end our meditation this morning. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one, count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one, count your many blessings, see what God has done. Let's pray.